Hello, and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk. And I'm Annie Krigbaum. Annie, how are you this week? You know, Nick, I think we should just do Baby Watch really quick and then jump right into arts and culture. Because we have a jam-packed Q&A episode for everyone, and we don't want to waste time with niceties. Never. Never, <laughs> never with the niceties. No. So Baby Watch, let's just go real quick. We're at 16 weeks. She finally has ears. So we actually bought our surrogate this contraption. Well, it's actually just a pair of headphones for your stomach. And she can put the headphones on and we can record us reading like nursery rhymes and children's books. And then she can play them for her belly so that our baby starts to get used to the sound of our voice. She can play the podcast. She can play the podcast. When's the release date? Um, oh, March 4th. It drops March 4th. She drops March 4th. She's as big as an avocado. She's also the size of a dill pickle, which is one of my favorite foods. So that's really special for me. That's a good sign. And she's also the size of an action figure. So you can get a sense of like, you know, how how big she is. And it's quite exciting. Um, we've started to buy a few baby clothes. I did find the perfect uh diaper bag. No thanks to any listeners of our podcast who have suggested zero diaper bags. Hermes makes a diaper bag. (sighs) I know. And it's canvas. And guess how much it costs? $2,600. $2,200. And Casey was like, we can just like buy a canvas bag. And I was like, yeah, but it won't say Hermes on it. Like, and he was like, but this one doesn't even say Hermes. It says like, you can just like, it's like engraved in like the buttons. And I'm like, exactly. What? I'm not actually going to buy it. I'm just going to think think about it. What do you think that's all about with you? Mm, Self, self doubt, Mm. insecurity, Mm. et cetera, et cetera. Arts and culture time. The first piece of arts and culture that I consumed uh, this week was actually a podcast that I heard about on another podcast, Bitch Sesh, and it is a podcast called Origins, and it's hosted by a guy named James Andrew Miller, who is a writer and sort of like a media historian in a way, and he, every season, takes on a different TV show or movie or band and basically gets everyone who is involved in the making of that thing to consent to an interview and he sort of like through the telling through everyone's different stories kind of like you see a bigger picture of like how this thing came to be so uh he's done seasons on the most recent season is almost famous and sort of like behind the scenes of almost famous the Mm -hmm. movie and uh the season before that which is the one that i just listened to was sex in the city and if you are obsessed with sex in the city where it was an indelible part of your childhood, which it was for me, you'll find this incredibly fascinating. He talks to all the main players, except for Kim Cattrall, who uh, declined to be interviewed. Literally the only person who declined in the cast, the crew, the producers, Candace Bushnell, everyone else talks. And it gets into some of like the controversy uh, surrounding Kim and Sarah Jessica Parker's relationship and sort of what that could have been about. And it's also an interesting story about sort of the advent of this like kind of, you know, fancy TV, I'll call it. Like it was, you know, The Sopranos, Sex in the City, then Mad Men, like this idea of like really, really high production value TV mm-hmm. sort of started with Sex in the City and, and HBO. Ooh, I would love for them to do a Sopranos version. That reminds me of this kind of like quilted interview narrative production. Sounds like this series that Mike Judge did for two seasons 
called Tales from the Tour Bus. On a, a podcast? It's not a podcast. It's actually um, an animated series, but the the audio is from actual interviews with people that were like in these situations. And it's people that like worked with like Jerry Lee Lewis, Rick James, George Clinton. It's super, super interesting and very well done. Yeah. I love like the making of cultural phenomena, mm-hmm. like how sort of the different stars aligned and different people's oh my God. like came together to make you something. You need to watch like Super that. Mensch. It's a documentary. Super yes. Mensch? Like the Yiddish exactly. word Mensch? What it's is a it documentary about? about this guy named Shep Gordon, who is like the original, like, did I tell you about this already? No, no, no. But I feel like I've seen previews. He like was the, was he like the manager for like Mike Myers and people But before like that, that he something? like invented Alice Cooper, like from nothing. And he like created all these like crazy marketing stunts. Like he took a photo of Alice Cooper naked with like a python draped over him, put it on the side of this like uh, truck and then had it quote unquote, break down in the middle of Piccadilly Square, whatever, teacup lane, (laughs) somewhere in London. (laughs) Teacup lane, okay. (laughs) And got all this crazy like press because there's this like salacious photo during the middle of rush hour. So he like, you know. So he's like a guerrilla marketer manager. But also just known for being, oh, he invented the Food Network. He invented famous chefs. Isn't that insane? Because he was upset That's after insane. he had gained all this success and was traveling the world with his, like, um, the people he managed and eating at all these amazing restaurants. He was pissed that, like, at the end, he'd be like, oh, my compliments to the chef. And then the chef never got to come out and get all the credit for the work. And so he was like, I'm flipping the script on this. Chefs should be famous. And he invented Emerald. I mean, it's so good. And all he's known for only doing, like, handshake deals. And he's, like, good for his word. It's super inspiring and really, really, really interesting. I love that. It's called mm-hmm. Supermensch. Um, also, just I, um, girl, did you see that Girlfriends is on Netflix? Yes. I um, did. It's kind of crazy how relevant, like, the fashion and also just like the storylines and everything are to now. Really? I yes. mean, it was like very 90s. But it was like cool 90s. Like, it wasn't like grungy. They were wearing like cool pleather pants. Like, they look like, they, look, they all look like outfits that girls would wear today. Really? And like the first episode, Joan, uh, Tracy Ellis Ross's character is in this like hunter green backless knit dress. And it looks like, I mean, she looks incredible and it looks exactly like something that like the Sheikah's girl would wear today. Yeah. Good show. I'm not like all the way done with it yet, but it's kind of funny. Their meeting place, like their, if it was friends, their central perk is this like um, expensive boring 90s restaurant you know like <laughs> tablecloth tables and like to-go salads and those big clamshell plastic containers <laughs> i love that yeah you should watch it my second piece of culture this week was an essay that i just read in new york magazine by emily radikowski aka emrata and it's called buying myself back and it's basically a personal essay that she wrote which is part of a book of essays that she's working on in which she talks about sort of like how as a model she has struggled with this idea that her image is not her own and the different situations in which she's sort of in in some ways been coerced into making images that she's not you know entirely comfortable with and sort of the dynamics that play into these sort of model photographer situations including a alleged sexual assault that she speaks quite candidly about and and really beautifully i was like floored by her writing and by the sort of stories that she tells about being a smart empowered confident 
young woman in this industry and how much of a mindfuck it is and how you have to sort of unpack so many different types of situations that you've that you've been in to really kind of claim your identity and, and to really feel like yourself and not like the image of yourself that is portrayed to other people. Yeah. Being a woman is just you if you if you have no power, it sucks. And then when you have power, it sucks too. People want to tear you down. Yeah, I mean, she talks about how Richard Prince, the artist, uh, had a show at Gagosian Gallery a few years ago where he was basically selling blown up screenshots of different people's Instagram pictures where he would like comment something kind of like confusing in uh, as one of the comments. And then he would screenshot that and then he was selling them for $80,000 and how basically she wanted to buy the one that featured her face and like she thought maybe she, like she would get a discount since he was literally making money off of her image without her consent. But wasn't she saying she was even conflicted about him using her image in the first place? I think it's I think it's all complicated. Yeah. Like I think she appreciates art. She appreciates the idea of sort of like appropriated art mm-hmm. and the power of context and all of that. But she was talking about how she basically split the work with her then boyfriend. And then when they broke up, like it got really complicated and he wanted her to pay for his half of it, even though it was a picture of her. And why would you want a picture of your ex-girlfriend hanging in your house? Anyway, it's a really interesting and really well-written article. And Emily is a friend of the pod and I'm like really happy that she's writing and sort of like processing the stuff that's been going on in her life this way. Yeah, it's a good read. Without further ado... I feel like we should get to top stories, really bang, 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 bang them out so we can get onto the Q&A episode, which we have been working on for weeks. Shall we? We shall. So Kylie Cosmetics' parent company is being sued for allegedly, quote unquote, inflating the brand and specifically like the brand's sales. And, you know, one of the shareholders actually was claiming that Cody, which is the company that acquired Kylie Cosmetics last year, overpaid for the beauty brand because they were basically shown inflated data. Yeah, this sounds messy. (laughs) (laughs) Look. (laughs) Is that your hot take? (laughs) Look, I'm just trying to, you know, um, keep a neutral. It's just it's a lawsuit that they filed. It doesn't. It's basically like a finger point move. Right. And what we did, we did see that Forbes article a few months ago that talked about uh, how they felt that they had been duped when they named her uh, a self-made billionaire in 2018 Mm -hmm. because they alleged that they had received falsified tax documents and like all sorts of things, which of course Kylie... the impetus for this lawsuit, Yeah. I mean, Kylie's camp vehemently denied all of that. But as someone pointed out on the internet, they haven't made a single retraction or correction to that Forbes article since it was posted several months ago. So I don't think they've been able to prove anything to the contrary. So this is uh, this is the lawsuit again brought by a Cody shareholder, Crystal Garrett Evans, um, against Kylie Cosmetics' parent company. So we uh, we will keep abreast of this case and update you accordingly. So, Nick, this is kind of an extension of one of last week's top stories on the F-Factor diet. Yep. You know the influencer who started calling out Tanya Zuckerberg? Uh, Yes, Tanya Zuckerberg. (laughs) (laughs) Got it, got it, got it. Um, Emily Gellis, who's this, like, fashion blogger turned, like, whistleblower for the diet 
industry. She's turned her gaze and her uh, Instagram stories onto. <laughs> I did not understand what you were saying. What? You said turned her gaze, and I thought you were like casually saying people? her like. Her oh. gaze. <laughs> No. She activated her gay. <laughs> she she activated her gay followers um, to draw attention to none other than Miss Teddy Mellencamp of the John Cougar Mellencamps, and also of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Basically, saying that like much like she was saying about Tanya Zuckerbrot, that she uh, was running what amounted to like this diet boot camp called All In with. Teddy, I think was the name of the program, but you could basically sign up and have this accountability coach who honestly, it, I got little like Nexium vibes from the whole thing where like you would have to like text your coach to see if you were allowed to like eat something, um, which is much like the Nexium documentary. But and basically, text them, like, like photos of your scale every day. Yeah. Um, and, and basically Emily Gellis, this blogger started getting, you know, once she started talking about Teddy's uh, program, diet program, she started getting all these DMs and comments uh, saying basically that like they were eating less than 500 calories a day and working out seven days a week for 60 minutes mm-hmm. and sort of having all these other like really kind of like horrifying practices. This is just reminding me of these like communities online, Reddit, Tumblr. I think Reddit took a hard stance against disordered eating communities that were popping up. They were like pro-anorexia communities. And it was the same kind of setup where girls would post on there, hey, I'm looking for a, like basically an accountability partner to lose weight. And girls would match with each other and do this exact same behavior, like text each other, like photos of their scales, photos of their bodies to like encourage each other in their process. Yeah. I guess the creepiest part is that if you participate in this program, if you sign up, you have to sign an NDA. That's weird. Yeah. That's why you're getting like weird culty vibes because women are scared that, you know, the company, I guess, will come after them if they speak out. And there are alleged screenshots that have been shared on social, including one that's instructions for the 15 day jumpstart. At the start of day one, send a photo of yourself in bra and undies or a bathing suit from both the front and side, as well as a photo of your weight on scale. You will continue to send scale photos every morning when you wake up, but not another body photo until after you completed 15 days. Your exact meal plan um, and then it's like oatmeal made with water and berries and a little brown sugar. Lunch is a half a cup of cooked brown rice with one cup of steamed veggies. So it doesn't really seem like the all-in program or Teddy have responded in a direct way, but um, in a more indirect way, she posted a video saying that she's super confident in her program. If it's not something you want to do, then don't sign up. <laughs> That's nice. Um, I think this all just speaks to like, the dangers and the pitfalls of like dispensing diet, exercise, nutrition, information, education online and having, and having someone monitor your health who doesn't have a degree or a like actual sense of your well-being. Yeah. I guess like that's the craziest part is that Teddy's like very open about none of these people being dietitians or, or experts. She's like, no, you can reach your, your nutrition and weight goals in other ways, but no, thank you. No, thank you. Pass. John Boyega, the star of star Wars and also a, um, hero from the most recent black lives matter protests, uh, is in the news again because he 
basically found out on Twitter that Joe Malone, for whom he was a global ambassador, had taken the, a concept for a video he had directed and starred in, shot in his home in London, and recast it with an Asian star for the Asian markets. Mm-hmm. And he has now cut all ties with Joe Malone and accused them of, certainly, of, uh, of racism. And he says... Their decision to replace my campaign in China by using my concepts and substituting a local brand ambassador for me without either my consent or prior notice was wrong. The film celebrated my personal story, showcasing my hometown, including my friends and featuring my family, Boyega said, according to Women's Wear Daily. Yeah, it was like a shot by shot remake. (laughs) Yeah, of his of this video. I would be pissed. (laughs) It's an open secret in the beauty industry that in Asia specifically, like there are oftentimes different models for the same brands and same campaigns that would be running in Western countries mm-hmm. because like there's a lot of obviously racism as there is here. Well, but, it's just like, not as like diverse of a market. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a there's a problem with when you have a global ambassador, like, you know, you have to account in some ways for regional idiosyncrasies, but like do you have to account for regional or like local racism and and uh, xenophobia. I don't know. I I don't think that that should be allowed anymore. Well, I guess nobody is looking at Joe Malone as a thought leader in cultural progression. But the other part of it is like, cool. If you were inspired by his concept that he created for the brand, then maybe ask him for his help in adapting a similar idea for the Asian market. I think that could have been a different way to approach this. But obviously, they just like again shot for shot ripped off his yeah idea. or like paid him to like direct that's what i'm saying Asian, they would have yeah, paid him yeah yeah it wouldn't have just yeah. been like an instagram dm hey let me get your thoughts on yeah on, um, or, but they didn't even do that he literally found out about no, it i know i'm seeing it repost on twitter which is pretty shameful so insane i yeah i think he's um obviously doing the right thing by yeah. cutting all ties that was our abbreviated top stories and now we're going to get into the content that you all have been waiting for our q a episode um, so pleasantly surprised and heartwarmed that we got so many DMs and emails from listeners who had questions for us. Our listeners are incredibly intelligent and had questions that some of which we could answer, some of some of which we had to phone a friend, so to speak. And so we did our best to answer all the questions we got. We might have to save some of the questions for a part two, depending on how long it takes for us to get through them. So again, thank you to everyone for participating and here goes nothing. So let's start with an easy one. What do you think? Okay. So I'll, how about this? I'll read the question and then if you're going to answer it and then if I'm going to answer it, you read the question. That sounds great. I love that idea. Okay. Alice wrote, What's the best body moisturizer that doesn't cost a lot so that I can put it all over my body every day without going broke? Well, Alice, the answer is Banana Boat Aloe After Sun Lotion. Not the gel, the lotion. It's a cream colored, you know, lotion. (laughs) (laughs) And it smells great. It's like by Banana Boat, you know. Um, There's no like SPF or anything, so you're not going to like smell like SPF. It's like around five bucks and... I've used it for years. I really like it. Use it every day? Not anymore, but like when I was in high school and stuff, all through college and then as in my 20s, but 
now I use other stuff. And it smells like coconutty, like Yeah, it smells beachy in the same way that like bronze goddess smelled just had that beachy smell, but it didn't smell like coconuts per se. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Bronze Goddess, by the way, is an Estee Lauder perfume. Nick and I both love it. Nick loves me to wear it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the other one that I would say is one that I constantly see dermatologists on Instagram talking about, which is the CeraVe body lotion. Yeah. When in doubt, and if you, especially if you have sensitive skin, the CeraVe daily moisturizing lotion is a great sort of like go-to. It's not going to have any irritants or not going to have most irritants. And again, it's like, you know, dermatologist approved. I see it all the time. So you can go my way, the banana boat way, or Nick's like dermatologist approved fragrance free way. <laughs> exactly. Richard writes, has your experience with fragrance changed since lockdown? Are you still wearing fragrances at home? And if so, which ones? And the same with interior scents. So I have a weird relationship with fragrances. Like I, I think I'm fragrance shy. I don't like to smell it on other people and it makes me self-conscious if I feel like I put on too much perfume because one time I went to a really nice sushi restaurant and I read, we got an email confirmation on our reservations that you, they tell you not to wear perfume. You're going to ruin the experience for everyone. Oh my God. That's interesting. So during lockdown, since I'm not really like seeing people throughout the day, I've, I've been putting on more of my fragrances that have just been sitting around. So I guess I've been getting more experimental. What are your fragrances? So one that I've been wearing a lot lately is Tom Ford's Metallique. It, I, I guess it's metallic. I mean, it's spelled with the Q, so. Which we bought together, Nick, actually, um, at that Lucky Scent store in LA, which I think we both love. It's kind of sweet, weirdly, but it's not cloying. And I, my classic one is uh, Le Labo's Gaiectin. It's really peppery and like sits really close to the skin. It's their Tokyo City exclusive, but I guess since it's September, you can actually buy it at any of the Le Labo stores right now. And then for home, I mean, I you know what? my The ones that I think are interesting are, um, I really love the Santa Maria Novella incense. They're amazing. Yep. The one that I'm like using right now is the Inverno, the, which I guess is their fall scent, but I've been using it for a while. And the, how do you say the Diptyque Fou de Bois? Faux de Bois. Faux de Bois. That's like, it's like a wood, wood burning that, oven kind of thing. That's my kitchen scent, but I'm really sensitive to like food and like, other fragrances like mixing together but that's my kitchen and then my bedroom is the Santal 26 candle from Le Labo which is just like yeah I know it's basic but <laughs> I love like those um wax I have the wax oval in my closet yep, from Diptyque I have those. so good yeah, those are amazing definitely so worth for it. those who haven't seen those they're like these pieces of wax enclosed in like a ceramic frame and you can put them in a closet, you can put them in a drawer, you can hang them on the handle of a door. You could like throw and one it, in your suitcase. Yeah, and, and they're they're actually pretty inexpensive for how long they last. They last much longer than a candle. Mm-hmm. They'll last for like six months probably. Um, and they're called... They're called the scented ovals. And they come in all the different scented scents. scented ovals. Actually, on that note, diptyque candles are like a go-to. You can't fail. The faux de bois is amazing, which is like that wood, so woody, Christmassy kind of scent. I also love the bays, B-A-I-E-S, mm-hmm. and the amber and the roses. Like they're all, they're all so good. And then in terms of personal fragrance, I have two that I douse myself in, and I like douse myself in. One is Portrait of a Lady by Frederick Mall, which is very florally but has some patchouli and sort of like more you know mysterious notes. And mm-hmm. then the other is Glossier U, which you told me is pink peppercorn and ambrette. And it's definitely powdery and light, but it is like 
so delicious. Like you could just, you can really like load that one on and it doesn't feel overpowering and it is mm-hmm. just like fresh mm-hmm. and refreshing. Yeah, it's a docile fragrance for sure. Somebody who I guess shall remain nameless because she says that she's a bit frustrated with this. So she says, I'm battling with facial hair and don't want to take spironolactone. Is that how you say it? Sure. To control excessive hair growth. Wondering what your take is on hormonal imbalances in women and how to embrace our natural selves. Are we to try to remove this hair? This is a great question. And I did not know the answer. So I called on a friend of the pod, Dr. Jessica Shepard, who is a doctor and she has an MBA and she is a board certified OBGYN. And she gave us this response. This is Dr. Jessica Shepard, a women's health expert. And many times throughout the lifespan of a woman, we notice there are changes in hair growth and sometimes hair loss. Now, what we do know about hair growth is that hair follicles can produce different types of hair, whether that's through length, thickness, or color. And at various times throughout an individual's life, that follicle has the capacity to regenerate a new hair during the hair cycle. Now, this is all controlled mostly by hormones, specifically androgens, which are the key regulators for human hair growth. And so when we think of hormones, and sometimes they may be imbalanced, androgens, again, have different effects on hair follicles depending on the body site. So when we think of facial hair growth, if there is a change in the androgen levels within a woman, there's potentially the outcome of having facial growth, facial hair growth rather. So how do we actually battle hair growth in the face? Now this can be done in a various amount of ways, including shaving, plucking, creams, waxing, threading, laser hair removal, and electrolysis. Now, those are all great options depending on what you would want for removal of the hair, if you want that to be temporary or permanent. So if you want to consider a hormonal response and how that might impact facial hair growth, a good tip is to visit your doctor or your gynecologist to check hormone levels. And when we check hormone levels, we may look at testosterone levels to see if there's an imbalance or an excessive amount of testosterone, which may contribute to facial hair growth. Now, this sometimes can be corrected depending on what those hormone levels are and trying to regulate them. But this also impacts how we are with our life and what we actually are going through at that point in our life, depending on if it's menopause, depending on if it might be after childbirth. But those are all things that factor into how hair growth occurs and specifically for facial hair growth, how we can look at that and fine tune that. So there are ways to change that naturally, but hormonal imbalances can play a significant part in facial hair growth. So go to your doctor and talk about the hair growth that you have and see the changes And also make sure that you bring this up so that hormone levels can be checked to see if there's any reproductive hormone changes or systemic hormonal changes that may be the cause of your facial hair growth. Okay, this is a good question. We got a question from a a young man named Jake who said, where do you see the future of in-store beauty retail heading post-COVID? With limited beauty services and no tester products available on shelves, what do you think will happen? This is a great question, Jake. And a little bird kind of told me some interesting things lately. Like, for instance, a lot of Sephora's are located in malls. 
Meanwhile, Ulta locations are usually freestanding. So Ulta is kind of, I think, getting a weird bump in business because of that. Most people are avoiding malls, but it's easier just to drive straight up to an Ulta and do your shopping. I think like in the future, because look, we are disgusting in America. We don't care about germs. You guys have been to Sephora's. You've seen how the testers are done. I was super inspired going to Japan because... It is the complete opposite. It's like everything from like bookstores to makeup is like our version of like clinical level, you know, organization and cleanliness. Like if you try on clothes there, they give you a mesh bag to put over your head so you don't get your makeup and skincare on like the clothes. I think that hopefully we'll take a much cleaner approach in that same way in the U.S. I think there's going to be a lot more sampling, unfortunately, because of like the way Like single use sampling. Mm -hmm. So instead of like having a bunch of lipsticks out and you can just like put it on your mouth, which is an insane thing that even existed. Um, now it's going to be a lot of like single use plastic little things where you probably like, you know, like with pills, like a Zyrtec or something where you'll like kind of open up the, the mm-hmm. tinfoil and then like try it on yourself. It's called like a blister pack. That's what it yeah. is. I think that skincare will easily be sold on the internet and like you can probably forego going into physical retail to buy skincare. I think makeup foundation, lipstick, all that sort of stuff that you really need to know the right shade and tone for your skin. Mm. You can't beat an in-store experience. So there will have to figure out ways, whether it's through that sort of single use sampling or like extreme cleanliness measures to make it still work. This is a really funny question from Stella. Am I the only one who thought that Nick was saying Nick Axelrod in the welcome intro and then saying welk? When greeting people, like as as in like shortening the word welcome. (laughs) I don't know. Were you the only person? I knew that Welk was his new last post marriage last last name. name, So basically the the reason behind the dash Welk was because we're having kids and we wanted, you know, as a family to all have the same last name as it makes it easier. Remember when like travel and like passports was the thing that was important, you know, before COVID when when you right. could go to foreign countries. Mm-hmm. That would make obviously everything easier if my name was the same as Casey's and our kids' names were the same. We wanted everyone to have the same name. So we did change them. Funny story though, I changed mine on my driver's license uh, when I just got my California driver's license about six months ago. Casey went to the DMV and they told him that he had to change his name with social security before he could get his driver's license changed. And so now I have a driver's license that I somehow managed to change that has Axelrod Welk on it. And Casey's still free as a bird with just Welk. Ooh. I know. Can I ask a personal question? Yeah. How did you decide on like the order of the names? Were you like, let's just make it easy, alphabetical, no drama? No, it's like it was by sound. It was like Axelrod Welk sounds fine. Welk Axelrod, you know, like Welk, <laughs> Welk, Welk Axelrod, you're right. It's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, it just doesn't it's in work. The, so that, I feel it in the back of my throat. Yeah, so it just sort of made its own decision. Mm. Jess has a question, which Annie has sort of touched on quite a bit, which is, what do you think about the clean label on everything these days? So I'm just going to take a super objective approach to answering this question. I'm going to try. The word clean is not a regulated term. There's no consistency across the industry on what this term means. So even like saying that it's a label is almost like taking it a bit too far. All it is is a marketing term. So if I'm going to flip and do my personal take on it is I think I have a real problem with misinforming consumers. And I think the label, even if brands use it with their best intentions, it is just a really gray area. And you know, rather than say their products are quote unquote clean, I think it's more important just to say 
more directly what is in and what is not in your product so that consumers are more easily informed. The one thing I'll say about the clean label is I think that it's increasingly gaining definition as like a superpower like Sephora has started their clean at Sephora category. And they have a very specific list of ingredients that they won't allow clean at Sephora brands to use. And so like as the big retailers start to create these definitions, it sort of solves the problem that Annie has with the fact that there is no definition for the word clean. So I think better than to sort of as a consumer to look for a product that says clean, you maybe go under the clean at Sephora drop down and see like which ingredients are forbidden from these products and then just look for products that avoid those ingredients and sort of, you know, create your own clean definition. Danielle had a very relevant question. In quarantine, I haven't felt like a human. And I really leaned into not worrying about my looks, washing and brushing my hair, nails done, haircuts, shaving, etc. And for a while it was great, but now I want to feel like a human again. What do you guys do when you feel like you're starting to dissolve into your couch? I wear jeans again, <laughs> which is pain. It's painful for the first couple you of days. You mean like it keeps you, keeps you honest? No, just like it makes you sit with better posture. It's just, you know, it... It makes you wear a different top. Like when I'm slobbing around in my like stretchy leggings and, you know, it's just, it's just a different, it's a totally different vibe, Nick. I don't know. What do you want me to say? No, that's fair. I, I mean, I've said this before on the podcast, but like working out and working out outside for as long as it's possible, wherever you live is a fucking game changer. Like it makes you feel better when you do dissolve into your couch at night. It makes you feel better when you like eat that cookie that you like are eating out of comfort, Mm -hmm. you know, versus hunger. And it just sort of like clears your head and does produce, you know, certain whatever. Endorphins. Endorphins. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My therapist is obsessed with me going on walks. And I think the first step is investing in like a really comfortable pair of shoes. So love that. And you know what is a great thing to do on a walk? Listening to our podcast? Yes. Yes. It's the perfect length of time. Ling wants to hear about our skincare routines. She wants to know our favorite treatments. She's asking us to ITG ourselves. Well, Ling, the first thing I'll say is that, you know, the internet is written in permanent marker and that you can actually read our top shelves, I think still on Into the Gloss. They are obviously not updated. However... I'll break you off a little piece. I think one thing I was realizing as we were preparing for this episode is I don't talk at all about Necessaire, the brand that I (laughs) co-created, which is, (laughs) do I talk about it? I don't talk about the product. No, 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 you don't, you don't. And they like have totally changed my routine. So, I mean, my shower used to be like Dr. Bronner's diluted. It never really smelled good. It didn't make my skin feel good. And I am religious about using our body wash, which is just called the body wash. I love the bergamot scent, which is a little citrusy, but a little spicy. And it's $25 for a bottle. A bottle lasts you about like, I'd say 45 days. And it just like leaves your skin not feeling dry and stripped, but you feel moisturized and it kind of perfumes your bathroom too. So the entire bathroom sort of smells bergamotty, which is really awesome. And then the second product I'm obsessed with that my co-founder, Randy, it was sort of her mission to create this super lightweight yet super moisturizing gel texture for a body moisturizer is called the Body Serum. And that's like a hyaluronic acid serum for your body, basically, that you can either use by yourself, which is normally what I do, and it just absorbs instantly, but it gives you that real feel of like moisturization, like in your skin, 
or you can layer it under like, your favorite body moisturizer. And then skin-wise, I'm going to be really honest with you guys. I was on a Biologic regimen for the last like month and a half that I was prescribed, and my skin is like sucking. I don't know whether it's like too many different products at once, but I my old faithful for moisturizer pre-Biologic was the Glossier, uh, the extra moisturizing rich. cream, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the rich moisturizing cream. I love like a really thick moisturizer that kind of leaves you feel looking a little bit dewy. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it's like a really good dupe of this one other cream that I'm obsessed with that's super expensive. And that one's only like 40 bucks. And then I love the Naturium serums because they absorb really quickly. They're like, if the ordinary actually made good products in terms of price point and sort of satisfaction level. Mm. And what else? I don't know. That's like, I mean, like I, I, you, you switch too, eye creams a lot. We know that you switch. I switch eye creams all the time. SPS I still all like, the time. I know. I still haven't found the one capital T capital O, but I'm looking and I'm not letting that deter me. What else can I say that's ITG related? You usually say something like cute and quirky about your childhood that led you to. Oh, your- yeah. Like I learned a lot about my skin from watching my parents in the mirror. No, that's a lie. Actually, this did happen, which is that my mom has been asking me to like give her a skincare regimen for like aging skin. And I have somehow like not been able to navigate the Paula's Choice website because it, there's so many different lines and it gets really confusing as to like, do you want the aging? you know, line? Do you want the extra moisturizing line? Like it just, you don't kind of understand what you're looking at. And so I basically just told her to get a bunch of products. She started them all about two weeks ago and her entire face broke out (laughs) in like basically hives and like pimples. And she's like, I'm old enough that I shouldn't be having acne. And I was like, I think it's from all the stuff that I told you to get. So you sabotage your mother. Yep. What about your drop the skincare routine? Okay, well, yeah, I had a similar thing happen recently where I, just, I think I changed up products too much and my skin got really angry. But, okay, so you guys need to understand the Milky Jelly Cleanser was like my favorite face wash was the Physiological Cleansing Gel from La Roche-Posay, and it was discontinued. Milky Jelly is the dupe of that product. I feel like it was tailor-made to my skin. So that is my – I've tried – and look, I've tried to switch it up. I've tried. How great would it be to just like you, you, yeah, go to CVS and get, no, it's my skin. It just like does really well with it. I've started using Dove, like no scented white soap in the shower, just really basic, like good for your pH, like all that. Love it. I think a new product that I'm loving lately is the Crave Beauty Great Barrier Relief. It's called Skin Barrier Repairing Serum. I use it like a moisturizer. It's like a, it is like a lotiony texture. It actually has a lot of oils in it, which normally I like don't look for in skincare or I try to avoid, but it's pretty great. Another, I use that or I swap with um, something called Super Flower. Again, it's called a serum. Guys, we're getting confused here because all these serums are like lotion texture. Super flower. It smells incredible. And these are really great, like heavier, lightweight moisturizers for summer. Guys, I use so many skincare products that like this is going to be a three hour long episode. I think the main takeaways, things that I'm loving right now are things with urea in them. I think urea is like the best ingredient ever for skin. It moisturizes and like loosens up like dead skin to exfoliate. So it's like really a miracle ingredient. What else? Another kind of like under the radar skincare product that I talk about all the time is this Vita Selena ointment that I get in Mexico and it has retinol in it. And you just get it at any drugstore in Mexico and I put it on like zits, scars, whatever. And 
I swear it, it cuts down the healing time and to next to nothing. By the way, we're going to put all of these products and links to the products on the uh, description page on Apple Podcasts for this episode. So you don't have to write everything down. Stop what you're doing and just listen. And then you can go back keep and walking, you can refer to that. Keep walking. You're going to run into a pole if you keep trying yep. to like, Get take your steps notes. in. I also love Eminence Organics. I use their stone crop mask and their strawberry rhubarb mask. But shout out Alexis Page. The best product developer in the game. She made the best face masks at Glossier. The Mega Greens Galaxy Pack is the clay one. It's super gentle. And the moisturizing moon mask is like, if I want to look really like hot and like have glowy skin before like a date or whatever, it's perfection. Okay. This is a question that we actually debated answering because we don't want to bring more negativity into the world. And it is what beauty and or skincare products don't live up to the hype and the positive reviews that they get. I, I'm i going to refuse to answer this question because I really believe that no one product works for everyone. So I don't want to like turn somebody off to a product that like wasn't great for me, but could be your quote unquote holy grail product. What's your take on that, Nick? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's the problem is like people will say like, oh, Vintner's Daughter Serum Oil is amazing. And then you try it and it's not great. Or, you know, I just think like everyone's skin is so different. And also the thing I'd say is a lot of the skincare products that have all this hype are like really high in actives and can be really, really aggressive for your skin. So if you think about like any of the good jeans by Sunday Riley or like all these kind of like grail products, they're actually like quite intense because that's how a lot of people psychologically sort of feel like they're working is like if they sting, if they burn, Mm -hmm. if they make you red. So I would say like, just because it's sort of like a buzzy product doesn't necessarily mean that it would be good for your skin. Also like the more products in my experience, the more products you use and try the more sensitive your skin gets. I had so much leeway with what I could use in my products before into the gloss. And then the minute I started experimenting with all sorts of actives, like my skin, totally has become so much more sensitive. So I would just more be careful. Be careful. I think we're all a little sensitive right now. True. Femoid asks, what do you make of the influence of forum spaces like Reddit on the market and brands strategies? It seems like bigger companies are increasingly plugged into the specific demands of subs like Skincare Addict and Asian Beauty, which are subreddits on Reddit. Is this a response to the consumer's behavior being changed by forums like this, or are companies actively observing trends in those spaces? I love this question. I'm obsessed with Reddit. I'm on it all day long. This is my thing. All of my clients, I made them get on Reddit and try to do research and they're like market or even some of my clients had, you know, subreddits dedicated to their brands. It's kind of crazy. Glossy too has its own subreddit. I think it's incredible. I think it's like the best. It's like basically a free focus group on the internet. I don't know why it wouldn't be in any brands like research portfolio. I can tell you a lot of brands overlook it because they don't understand Reddit. I mean, just look at who's at the top of a lot of brands. And I think it's a little bit of a chicken or the egg thing. Like a lot of, I I can see there is an overwhelming amount of people who are very price conscious on Reddit and that's not a dig. It just is what it is. And so they love like drugstore. They oftentimes like will be highly critical of brands just on the basis of price or things that like don't even have anything to do with the formula. And yeah, I think with any conversation online, it's usually like a vocal minority, which kind of leads us into our next question around like, Femoid also wanted to know about fragrances and beauty products and if truly like the masses care if it's in products or not. Hold on. Can I interrupt you for a second? Mm -hmm. Can I spit some facts at you? Yeah. We did a little digging. A friend 
works for a agency that does a lot with online beauty sales. And I asked her to pull basically the top skincare products for the last 30 days from the biggest seven beauty retailers. And even a look at this list will show you that consumers, for as much as they talk about on Twitter being anti-fragrance, and as much as you know, Fenty Skin was ripped apart by commenters about you know, having added fragrance in it, they do not care. The five top skincare products best-selling for the last 30 days were Drunk Elephant Sea Firma Vitamin C Day Serum, no fragrance, Glow Recipe Pineapple Sea Brightening Serum, fragrance, Ole Henriksen Goodnight Glow Retinol Sleeping Cream, fragrance, Skin Feels Good Hydrating Tinted Moisturizer, fragrance, and then two Drunk Elephant products and an Ole Henriksen product, fragrance, Briogeo, fragrance, etc., etc., etc. So the answer is like it's a vocal minority and that most consumers actually do like fragrance in their skincare products. And a lot of people are not sensitive to added fragrance, so it shouldn't be like an all or nothing thing. Yeah, I think that there's a misconception that there is like a winning demo in beauty and there's not. There's a lot of things going on, a lot of different consumer types that are being marketed to and products being made for that are like quite large. So there is no like consensus here in the beauty industry. And I think that that can get And I've also said this before, but if you really are sensitive to fragrance, you want to look for fragrance-free products versus unscented because unscented can actually mean that they've added a fragrance to make it smell unscented, as strange as that sounds. But like oftentimes skincare products in their natural state like smell like plasticky or chemically. And so formulators will add a fragrance ingredient to make it smell more neutral. So like if you really, really are sensitive to fragrance, you're going to want to go fragrance free. That's another like labeling term that people just need to do their own research on. Leah asked, how can I get my epilation to last? I feel like I have to do it every week. What am I doing wrong? Leah, you're doing it right, actually. About a week, some hairs will start to come through. That's totally normal. It's the hair regrowth cycle. And the great thing about it is once you like have to epilate those hairs, it takes way less time and your pain tolerance goes like way up. And eventually, you're going to see like less and less hair. So you know it's not this like silver bullet, you do it once and it goes away, you're going to get sporadic hairs coming through and probably uh, doing your ablation once a week. You know, it's way better than shaving every day, I think. The way I also treat my legs when I'm in my ablation mode is I do, I exfoliate every time I'm in the shower and I use a Urea all over body lotion. Urea like 10%. It's from a Japanese brand that I can't read the brand name. (laughs) Mengjil1 asked, Does the world need any more beauty brands? When will it stop? I think they need one more, but otherwise, no. I think that the more beauty brands there are, the more competition there is, and the better like the products, the end product will be for the consumer because people will have to step up their game and sort of the idea that like the more runners you have in a marathon, like the faster the first one is gonna be. And don't quote me on that because I don't know if that metaphor makes sense. But I do think that like even within body care, when we were launching Necessaire and we started to see some other brands coming out with like similar communication as us and similar products as us, we felt that having competition from other brands was going to help with sales and also help with our marketing because the more other competitive brands you have that are paying for their own marketing, they're also kind of marketing the need to wear body lotion to use nice body wash. And that's marketing you're not having to pay for as a brand. So I do think that like 
competition can be a really good thing, especially when you're entering a new category or like a category that's been kind of dusty for a while that consumers need more education on. Nick, Phoenix wants to know, please tell me more about vitamin C, specifically when to apply it and what is an affordable option. I'm also keen to know about how you use sunscreen around your makeup. Do you apply over makeup or under or both? So these are two great questions, and they are questions that are above our pay grade. So I called in my former dermatologist in New York, who is a board-certified dermatologist with her own practice called Wiser Skin. Her name is Dr. Jessica Wiser. She's at WiserSkinMD on Instagram, and she hosts regular Q&As on her page, and she'll answer everyone's question really like pretty consistently, even if she's been asked it a million times. So here is her answer. Vitamin C is a potent antioxidant that should be applied every morning. Antioxidants in general neutralize highly reactive molecules called free radicals that primarily come from pollution, UV exposure to protect the skin against damage, and aging. This also means vitamin C products oxidize, making them ineffective, so make sure you're using one that doesn't turn brown. So you know how some vitamin C serums, this is an editor's note, you know how some vitamin C serums will like turn brown after a few weeks? Yes. That means that they've oxidized and that they don't have like the power that they once had. Mm-hmm. Uh, vitamin C is a brightening agent, which means it inhibits melanin production to improve pigmentation and create a more even skin tone. Additionally, vitamin C is an acid, ascorbic acid, so it helps stimulate skin turnover and renewal to maintain more youthful skin. And she says there are a great many number of vitamin C serums on the market, and most of the good quality ones aren't cheap. The one decent and expensive option she has is Vichy Lift Active Vitamin C Brightening Skin Corrector, and that's $29. Her personal favorites are Isden Flavo C Ampules and Skin Better Alto Defense Serum. And this is, again, an editor's note. I would like to take Dr. Weiser's recommendations like without a grain of salt, and I would take them right to the store. In terms of sunscreen, she said this, sunscreen, whether cream, lotion, or gel should be applied in the morning under makeup as a first round. Since reapplication should be done every two hours, all subsequent layers go on top of makeup. Reapply sunscreen throughout the day with zinc oxide-based powder like Color Science, Sun Forgettable, or use a tinted sunscreen that blends well with makeup. She is the biggest proponent of sunscreen I've ever met in my entire life. She says, even if you're sitting at a computer wear sunscreen. If there's a window near you, you're still getting sun exposure. That's still contributing to wrinkles and premature skin aging and all of that sort of stuff. So you heard it here first at Wiser Skin MD. Okay, Kathleen, do you think people will start admitting to filler and procedures as part of their routines during interviews? Are top shelf style interviews kind of over because everyone is getting procedures? What are Nick and Annie's favorite places to get filler? Well, number one, Kathleen, that is very presumptuous of you to assume that we're getting filler. Um, However, my favorite place to get filler is Good Skin LA, which is around the corner from my apartment. I think less is more. And what I really like about Good Skin is that that is their philosophy. It's like they've coined this phrase, the untouched look. So the idea is that you don't look like you've had work done. You just look like a you know, more refreshed version of yourself. I do appreciate you calling me when you are, you know, a little swollen, just so I can see you look like a real housewife. (laughs) (laughs) I've gotten under eye filler. I've gotten cheek filler. I've gotten, I like to call it a little hydration in my lips. (laughs) What can I say? Annie, what's your favorite? Where's your favorite place to get filler? (laughs) I wish I had one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's so expensive. 
It is really expensive. I have to pay rent. The one thing I would say to everyone listening who's interested in getting under eye filler, which helps with you know circles and hollowness under your eyes, is don't do a Groupon. Don't go to a place where you can get the cheapest oh my rate. God. Honestly, save save your money and and save up to be able to afford somebody. Usually, I'd say like a board certified plastic surgeon or a dermatologist like Dr. Weiser, a place that really is known for doing good work and not just a place that has the lowest price. Yeah, I think if you've ever had a bad haircut, imagine that being permanently on your face. And I guess to answer your other questions around, will people admit to it or whatever? I think another kind of objective way to answer this is people have been getting procedures all throughout the existence of top shelf interviews even before. I think it might be more prevalent now, but um, I wouldn't just assume that it would cause a major difference in the content that you're seeing in a lot of these influencer or celebrity interviews. These people have access to these kind of procedures and they always have. So do with that information what you will. I do think that people are being more open about it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they're being more open about it. But I think this idea that like now suddenly, suddenly everybody has it and it's like, yeah, it's no, no. it's more just people are talking about it. Right. Normalized filler. Debo or Debo had a question which he says or she says was odd, but on my mind. Mikvah practice, especially during COVID. I guess he wants to know, like, how has COVID affected the practice of mikvah? What is a mikvah, you asked? Great question. I didn't know the answer. I knew what a mikvah was, but I didn't know the answer about how they've sort of adjusted to the new COVID reality. So I and asked I a guy. I definitely don't know what a mikvah, mikvah is. I asked Rabbi Adam Greenwald, who is the Vice President for Jewish Engagement at the American Jewish University. He's also the Director of the Moss Center for Jewish Journeys and the Miller Intro to Judaism Program. He is, in addition, the Supervisor of the AJU Community Mikvah. Here <laughs> so in Los he's Angeles. like the person to ask. He is the Mikvah expert. And here's what Adam said, or I should say Rabbi Greenwald. Please. Mikvah is an ancient Jewish spiritual technology for marking transitions. People visit the mikvah to prepare for a wedding, before or after giving birth to a child, to mark recovery from illness, or even to convert to Judaism. Archaeologists have unearthed mikvahs from more than 2,000 years ago, making this one of the oldest continuously practiced Jewish rituals. While most mikvahot shut down at the start of COVID, as we have learned more about the virus and how it's transmitted, many, including the American Jewish University's community mikvah in Los Angeles, have begun to carefully reopen. Our mikvah has established strict COVID protocols, including pre-screening questions, limiting the number of people in the mikvah area to two, which includes the person immersing and their witness, spacing our appointments to avoid overlap, and carefully sanitizing surfaces between use. Our mikvah, like all modern mikvahs, has always been chemically treated for cleanliness, and we've been advised by epidemiologists that water transmission is not considered a risk factor. Any responsible mikvah operator right now is doing everything possible to ensure the safety of both users and staff while keeping this essential Jewish ritual service available to those who need it. You know, you learn something new every day. And that is, uh, again, Rabbi Adam Greenwald, who generously gave us this very comprehensive answer to our question. The mikvah, I asked if they had an Instagram account, and he said that it doesn't. But if you want to include his, it's at Adam R. Greenwald. It's mostly pictures of me and my baby and food, he said. It's giving me shades of uh, baptism. It is. I think a lot of religions do have like a water moment. I like that he called it a spiritual technology. Yeah. 
I had only heard of it really in conversions to Judaism, like where people would uh, take a mikvah or have a mikvah. Mm. Anyway. Well, great research, Nick. Nick, is doing extractions on yourself really that bad? Kira asks. How else is the gunk going to get out my face? I knew that my friend Lily, who is a licensed esthetician in New York, and she is the owner of the Skin Wind Spa, aka Cave of Beauty on Twitter, would have a great answer to this question. And she did. She says, yes, it is that bad. Mostly because people don't know the right amount of pressure to use and when to stop extracting because of the risk of causing further harm. Some things simply can't be extracted at a certain moment until they're completely ready. And I find that a lot of people will just keep digging and digging and digging into their skin to get it out, which only increases the inflammation. And that puts them at a higher risk for atrophic scarring, as well as PIH and PIE, which is post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and post-inflammatory Arithma, arithma. Anyway, those sound bad. Another factor is that most people aren't doing extractions aseptically, meaning they can introduce bacteria from their hands, tools into the skin, and this can result in a further impacted pore. So the answer is yes. Doing extractions on yourself really is that bad. Eh, I think you'll uh, you live, you learn. Do not tell that to Lily at Cave of Beauty. If you get hyperpigmentation, I would say steer clear. But you you know, you know when it's you know when it's ready. Come on. I do not endorse that message. Stash Media wants to know, is that a media agency that sent us? <laughs> we'll <laughs> answer it. They're their own everyone's a media agency at this point. Yeah. Does Rogaine work on the eyebrows? This is an awesome question. One that again, I don't know the answer to. So I asked Dr. Weiser and she said Rogaine can be used on the eyebrows, but it is very difficult to precisely control the area of Rogaine application, so it may result in excess hair growth on the temples, forehead, and eyelids, Oof. also known as the werewolf effect. Aww. Usually, Latisse is a better aesthetic option for the brows. Interesting. Not something I have to <laughs> explore. No, you're all set. Sophia wants to know about products from our youth that we still use today. So my ride or die is Bumble and Bumble Sumotech. So when I was a little a little gay kid, Bumble and Bumble was like the coolest brand that existed. And I would use like their hair sprays and their shampoos and conditioners. I've gotten off of all of those. However, Bumble and Bumble Sumotech, I still use. It like adds a really great definition to my curls, but doesn't feel crunchy. Um, and I love it. Mine is just... By default, I'm not a palette girl. And all eyeshadows come in palettes now, except for these singles that I've been using since I was young, which are Bobbi Brown in Espresso, Navy, and Bone. And Urban Decay has great singles too. They have a lot of shades. But yeah, it seems like no brands or a lot of brands have gone the palette route instead of the singles. And it, you know. I like that. Sophia asked, one piece of advice you wish you were given early in your career? You know, I'm I'm more of a the past is in the past. I don't really I'm not a very reflective person. But I would say one thing is like email stress. People get so stressed about emailing, especially if you're like very junior and early in your career. It's really not that big of a deal. Don't read over it after you've sent it. It's a bad habit to develop. No, but read over it a few times before you send it to make sure you don't have any spelling errors or punctuation errors. Aim for two to three times. Yeah. Some people sit for an hour, which is fine if it's like a complicated email, but if it's just like a quick communication type thing, then don't stress. It's fine. 
Another thing is, Nick, as you, we talked about this a little bit last night, and as you so eloquently stated, you don't get what you don't ask for. So I think that is something that I didn't really know. I think I was just more of a go with the flow, work really hard and good things will come to you. But I could have been more, I think, aggressive on the amount I was getting paid or opportunities that I wanted rather than just being like so grateful I was here (laughs) and willing to do whatever. And I think that doesn't mean like being ungrateful or being, you know, or expecting to automatically get what you want. But I think, you know, for example, if you want to write an article for a publication and you pitch them something and they say, sure, but you don't negotiate a rate or don't even talk about a rate that you're going to get paid and they don't pay you, sure, that's shitty of the publication. But like, unless you've negotiated your rate up front or even made that conversation a conversation, like, you know, you're sort of not putting yourself first. I think secondarily, and this sort of like segues nice into my other piece of advice I wish that I was given, which is that nobody cares about you. And I mean that in the best way possible. I mean that like the minute you leave a situation, say you've just left a job interview and you're like, oh my God, like I stuttered on that answer. Like I'm such an idiot. Like that person who you just interviewed with is like already like back on Gmail shopping for their trip, you know, that they're going on, like, or thinking about like how they seemed stupid when they were talking to you. Like everyone is self-involved and no one is paying too much attention to how other people act or what they say because everyone's worried about themselves. So I think there's like this idea that when you're like young and you're starting out in the industry that like everything you do is being watched and like you're sort of on You're walking on glass. You're, yeah, you're walking on glass like is just not the case. Like everyone's wrapped up in their own bullshit and like you just need to focus on doing the job well and making sure you're compensated for it fairly and then otherwise don't worry about it. What a time to be alive, okay, asks Annie, can you talk about the experience of being a beauty editor, like the best and worst aspects? Yeah, um, I can talk a little bit about it. I think, and this isn't me complaining, I just, my person, I'm a massive introvert, and so there's so many events that you get invited to as a beauty editor, and Nick used to make me go to them when he was my boss, and I really don't like that kind of stuff. I get really, like... Socially awkward. So... No, not that, Nick, but I thank do. you. I like hate going to those like dinners where you have to assign seats. But you're such like, like a chatty, to... like charming person. I know, but it's a lot of work. I Yeah, and it's not like I'm too cool or I don't want to make new friends. It's not that at all. It's just I am such an introvert and I don't do well in those situations. I don't find them fun. That would probably be like one of the worst aspects. One of the best aspects is meeting really cool, incredible like hairstylists, makeup artists, photographers, models. Like I love casting as like one of my favorite things that I've gotten to do as part of my job. And yeah, I think just working with all different sorts of talent was like my favorite, favorite, favorite thing. Like the fact that like Dick Page like could respond to my DM and come on the show is like very, very, very like cool. I love that. Yeah. Like some of the most interesting people in the world I've met through doing this. Okay. Caroline, And this is our last question. And we have some questions we haven't had time to answer, but we will answer them either in a bonus episode or in the second part to this in a few weeks. Caroline asks, well, she says, to preface, I'm starting my last first day of undergrad tomorrow and minorly freaking out about what to do with my life, compounded by the dire state of the world. So I'm curious what each of you studied in school, what your lives were like post-grad, and what seminal events brought you to where you are now. What advice would you give yourself in your last year of college? Okay, where do we start? I 
studied communications, advertising, and public relations at University of Texas in Austin. <laughs> uh, Hook'em horns. Post-grad, my graduation process, honestly, I I don't think I like technically graduated. I think I'm like a couple of credits short, but I think my it was my counselor's last year and I think she left quite abruptly and I think she just like pushed my <laughs> hours through. You're like, really? And I actually, so here's what happened. I In college, I had the opportunity to come and like be a writer for New York Fashion Week. So I was in New York like all the time. I fell in love with New York and I would intern during the summers and the summer after my junior year, I got a job to intern at Alexander Wang um, in the <laughs> merchandising department, which I thought was visual merchandising. It's not. It's a lot of Excel spreadsheets and a lot of um, preparing stuff for buyers. But I did get to like produce photo shoots, which was cool, that nobody saw, like all for internal use, by the way. And let's see what else happened. I loved New York. I fell in love with this like dirtbag guy, and I just stayed and didn't do my senior year. I did like all of my credits online before. And I thought I would work in fashion and that didn't work out. I didn't end up getting a job as his personal assistant, which is what they were like (laughs) interviewing me for. Thank God, because I think my life would have gone a totally different direction. And um, so that would be like a seminal event. And then I moved back to Austin and just, well, I did well. I sold vintage clothes online, which every girl my age did in Austin at the time. (laughs) If you want to read about it, read Sophia Maruso's uh, autobiography, because I guess it's the same Thing. And then I started writing beauty articles for exojane.com and Jane Pratt was like, hey, your articles do really well. Come to New York and start our beauty website. So I did that. And then a little less than a year later, I had Nick pop up in my DMs saying he wanted to um, hire me to come work at Into the Gloss. So advice I would give yourself in your last year of college would probably be um, drop out because I don't think I picked... I think this is the one time in my life I should have listened to my parents. They thought I would study visual art because I was such like an an art kid. And I think I got swept up in the idea of like more having friends and doing something more traditional. Maybe it was like my version of rebelliousness and studied PR because I heard it was really easy. And I think since I didn't really know what I wanted to do, I didn't really apply myself to doing something that I was truly interested in. I, I should have studied visual arts. So I studied urban, I was an urban studies major at Brown. And when I graduated, I thought it's sort of, it's a a kind of a personal story. So I came out of the closet between my junior and senior year of college. And so when I came back to school for my senior year, I was like out and gay and kind of like expressing myself in style in a way that like I hadn't been able to do uh, previously And I think that that was sort of a major driving force behind me wanting to be in fashion because I thought like all of a sudden, like I was really in touch with my personal style. Like I want to be in fashion. I want to be a fashion designer. So I ended up having a friend whose mom's friend worked at Ralph Lauren as the head of communications and marketing for Ralph Lauren home, which is their home, like their fancy home goods Mm -hmm, brand. mm -hmm. And she was hiring an administrative assistant for marketing communications at Ralph Lauren home. And I was like, great, I will get this job. A few months later, I'll be designing the Ralph Lauren men's collection. Like, I'll just sort of like, you know, meet people in the hallway, yada, yada, yada. So that's not how it works. And I packed basically like boxes of plates and dishes and vases to send to different publications to be photographed and then unpack them when they came back and put them back on like the sample shelf. And I was like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. It's going to be impossible for me to get 
to the design team. And I left that job. And basically, and this was my other sort of piece of advice, I emailed every managing editor at every Condé Nast publication pretty consistently, like once a week with my resume and a cover letter sort of saying, you know, what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to write and I wanted to be in fashion journalism. And finally, someone wrote back to me. They had a friend who worked in the HR department. I got called in for a job as an assistant, the fashion assistant at Women's Wear Daily and ended up getting that job. I got to write a lot in that job because of my mentor, Bridget Foley, who is the, she's like still like the chief critic for Women's Wear Daily and a really brilliant person. She sort of took me under her wing, let me write cover stories, fashion reviews, things like that. And that was a big moment for me and a big sort of turning point in my career where I sort of saw, here's this industry that I'm able to kind of report on, but also be a part of. And I think the second defining moment after Women's Wear Daily was really my first time meeting Robbie Myers, who was the former editor of Elle magazine. She was the editor-in-chief. And I remember I interviewed to be her assistant. And I, I walked into her office after you know being greeted by her secretary. And she like swiveled around in her like black swivel chair. And she was like the most elegant, chic woman I'd ever seen in my life. She looks like a movie star. Was, she looks like a movie star. I was so intimidated. And she was like, why do you want to be my assistant? And I like, you know, gave whatever answer I could muster. And long story short, she did not hire me, but she wrote me like the nicest rejection email I've ever gotten, basically saying like, you don't want to be my assistant. You will not be happy getting my sandwiches. And I like need someone who's willing to stay in this job for a few years. And I can just like tell that's not you. But she was like, I do want you to work at Elle Magazine. So let's keep in touch. A few years later, I got a job as a senior editor at Elle and worked a lot with Robbie and with Joe Z, who was the creative director. And that kind of like set me on my on my path. And then I guess that's so funny. The, the, I don't want to interrupt your story, but it reminds yeah. me that exact same conversation happened with me, but with Alex's current assistant really? in the interview. Pro- yeah. And so I guess if we're talking about like seminal moments, like she tried to warn me, she was like, look, you're really smart. <laughs> and I don't know that like you want to be doing this with your life. Yeah, And I remember and I being think, like yeah. kind of taken aback and like didn't really know what to do with that information. I don't think I was mature enough at the time. You know, it's obviously really good <laughs> feedback where it doesn't feel so good at the time. You're like, fuck, I didn't get this job. Like I was going to be in the Devil Wears Prada. Like this was going to be amazing. And then you're like, shit, I don't get it. And like, it's nice to get an email saying like, I'd love to have you work at L, but where's the job? Um, eventually I got the job. And I think finally, like the the last sort of seminal moment in my early career was meeting Emily Weiss. She worked at W Magazine in the fashion department. I worked at Women's Wear Daily in the fashion department. We became best friends. How quickly you know, did all this happen after you graduated? Like, what was this timeline like? I graduated in 2006. I was at Women's Wear Daily from 2007 through 2010. Oh, wow. Uh, I was at L from 2010 through 2012. And then Emily, I joined her in her studio in 2012 Mm -hmm. to build into the gloss and that is how history was made and that is how i ended up that's how i built this that's a different that's how i built this that's yes one day they'll be like nick annie tell us how you built eyewitness beauty (laughs) (laughs) until then we can wrap up our first semi-annual Q&A episode of Eyewitness Beauty. Um, We're also not going to do a product of the week this week 
because we talked a lot about products during this episode, and this is also a long episode, and we all have things to do. You've reached your step count. It's time to call it. Okay, so that's it for this week's episode of Eyewitness Beauty. Thank you so much for your questions again, and thank you for listening to the answers. Continue to ask us questions because we will constantly be assembling them for future Q&A episodes. Also, please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts so that you can always be the first to download our episodes. You can follow us on Instagram at eyewitnessbeauty or write to us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our art is by Simon Abranowitz, and our theme music is by Danny Prezant. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode, and we'll talk to you then. Sayonara, suckers. Sayonara, suckers.